good to be here, Burleson Bible Church. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate this opportunity. I was thinking of telling Jairus, I thought it was about time. I was a little bit overdue. I hadn't been here for a while. So we really enjoyed the worship service this morning. It's great to hear, to be able to sing together with God's people, songs that really exalt the Lord. I appreciate Jairus uh, leading us, and it's great to be able to be here. Um, We're going to be talking about prayer, as we've already kind of alluded to a little bit, and we're going to be doing that. But before we do, why don't we do it? Let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the freedoms that we have uh, in America and other places to be able to worship you. We thank you for your spirit, which is here with us today. As we come to your word, we want to not just be hearers of your word, but we want to be doers of your word. We want to put it into place and practice in our lives. We want it to be front and center in how we think, how we relate to people, how we relate to the world. Uh, It makes all kinds of different decisions. We want a life that really is centered around your word. And as we look at prayer, we're going to see what your word has to say about prayer and what the Apostle Paul had to say to us about prayer. And we just pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, help us to be able to take uh, what you want to say to us today and put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me just say, Jairus has already kind of given a little introduction. We are with Christar. I put some of these uh, little brochures on the back table. I'll put this one back there as well. It talks a little bit about Christar. We have a great... um, communications department that puts these things together for us each year. They've got a lot of different things in here that they talk about. There's also uh, this little thing back there that talks about our giving catalog. It says, if you're looking for the perfect gift, give the gospel, which I think is a good idea. As we look at Christmas time and that time of the year, uh, we can contribute to Amazon's incredible uh, overreach, or we can look at giving in other areas. And this talks about some different projects, I think 20 different projects that uh, Chris Starr has around the world where the gospel is going into least reached places. Uh, as Jarrah said, we are with Christar. Christar has been around since 1909. We were not with him in 1909, but we did join in 1997, where we have been with Christar all that time. And uh, our kids have really grown up with that. We served in Turkey uh, for about 10 years, and then God brought us back to the States. And we are, uh, our current title is called a pre-field coach. And what a pre-field coach is, is we are someone who walks alongside people that believe that God is calling them to serve uh, as long-term workers. We also do a little bit of work with midtermers and emissaries, which are a little bit of a different category, but primarily it's with long-term workers. And we've got a, a training session coming up in January where we have probably between 20 to 30 people that are going to be joining Chris Star. Uh, we get to, to walk alongside them from the time they join us until the time they get on the plane. So we've had uh, several people. We had a, a doctor in his uh, family go to the Central Asia recently. They went back in uh, earlier this year. We've got another doctor that's going to be going to the Middle East with his family uh, next month. We've got a group of three singles that are going to the Far East in January. Cindy's got another gal that's going to India coming up after the first of the year. So all these people that we get to walk alongside of, we get to see God work in their lives. And it's really kind of a neat thing. And since we kind of have walked where they walk, when we had to do all the stuff that they're having to do now, it helps us to be able to um, tell them and encourage them and counsel them because there's a lot of opposition they face. They face a lot of opposition as they pursue this course. Christar works in what they call least reached areas, meaning there's not usually a lot of Christians, there's not usually a lot of churches. So they're going to go there and they can expect opposition. They can expect a difficult language to learn. They can expect being away from their family, the familiar, all the different things that we uh, value and enjoy here 
Uh, and so there can be a lot of uh, discouragement sometimes, and we try to walk alongside them and encourage them and help them and guide them. And Christar, really, we believe a lot in prayer. Prayer is one of our core requirements. As I talk about those people that are joining Christar, they have to have 100 daily prayer partners. Uh, it's a big commitment for somebody. We have people here in Burleson Bible Church and other churches that pray for us daily. It's a big commitment for people to do that, but they have to have 100 daily people praying for them every, every day as they go out. That's one of the requirements. It doesn't matter if they've got all their money. It doesn't matter if they've got a Ph.D. from Dallas Seminary. If they don't have their prayer support, we don't let them go because we know how difficult it is in those challenging places. We know how hard it can be day in and day out to stay there and to learn the language and to learn the culture and to deal with sometimes not a lot of response. You know, it's, it's great if you can go somewhere where the people are saying, oh, tell me more about this Jesus. It's a little different when you go to a place where they, you know, argue with you or try to, try to run you out. A lot of our workers get run out of countries because they're sharing the gospel, and those countries don't want them sharing the gospel. There's, they're Muslim countries, Buddhist countries, Hindu countries, atheistic countries, and oftentimes they don't want people there sharing the gospel. So we really believe in prayer. Our office prays every morning at 9 o'clock, Monday through Friday. When we were on the field in Turkey, we had... Uh, uh, every month we had a day-long prayer meeting. We had weekly prayer meetings with our team. And the reason we do that is because we know that the work is not dependent upon us. We need God's help. It's, it's something that's greater than Christar. It's greater than all the different mission agencies and churches and everything that are behind it. It's something that only God can do. But he lets us join him in that work. He lets us join him in the work of taking the gospel to least reached places. It's really a, a privilege that I sometimes am in awe of that God would allow us to be involved in that. That God would allow us to see people going into those least reached parts of the world. I know it's hard for us sometimes here in America, and especially in Texas, to imagine a place that doesn't have a church on every corner. To imagine a place that doesn't have Christians that you rub shoulders with when you go to the grocery store or wherever it may be. But that's the way it is. With the country we served in, Turkey has around 70 million people. There's maybe five to 10,000 Christians out of that. That's a very, very small percentage of that population. And there's a lot of other countries that are like that. And there's not a lot of churches, and those churches face opposition. So we believe in prayer. We think it's very, very important, and it's one of our, one of our priorities. So we're going to be talking about prayer today. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Paul's prayer uh, what he prayed for the, for the Colossians there, we're going to start in verse 3 and we're going to go through 14. So I want to read that first to kind of set the tone and then we're going to look at uh, some other things as we kind of unpack that. So I'm going to be reading from the New English Translation, which is also called the Net Bible, which is a, a great translation. I like it for its clarity, especially when you have to be up in front of people and read. It's a lot easier. So I'm going to start in verse 3. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you have heard about in the message of truth, the gospel, that has come to you just as in the entire world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, so it has also been bearing fruit and growing among you from the first day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow slave, a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, from the day we heard about you, have not ceased praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may live worthily of the Lord and please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good deed, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power 
according to his glorious might for the display of all patience and steadfastness, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I think it's neat that we have these recorded prayers of Paul, the recorded prayers of Jesus, so we can see, kind of have a model to go on. Because sometimes prayer can be confusing, it can be difficult, it can be a struggle. And I know if you're like me, you sometimes struggle with being consistent in prayer, for finding the time to do it when life is busy. But we see these glimpses from Paul, and he's, he's sharing this with his uh, prayer that he has for the Colossians. And so I think it's neat that we can see that, and we can look at our own prayers. And what I want us to do today is kind of think, what do I pray about? How do my prayers go normally? What kind of things are on the top of my prayer list? What kind of things do I pray about? And how do I want to maybe do that differently going forward? Um, Lifeway Research did a, a little bit of a survey. This has been about maybe eight years ago on what people typically pray for. And this is Americans. And they said people typically pray for, I'm going to list you like the top four or five things. Number one is family or friends. About 82% of their prayers are for family or friends. Number two on the list, 74% is my own problems and difficulties. Number three, 54% good things that have occurred recently. I'm assuming that's maybe more of a praise. And then the fourth thing is my own sin at about 42%. But I thought it was interesting because it says about 13% of Americans who pray say they pray for sports teams. Compare with about one in five who say they have prayed to win the lottery. So I appreciate people's honesty. I think that's a good thing. They didn't just all, said sometimes you've got to pray for, for the different teams or whatever. Um, and then they also said that this is about the consistency of prayer. About 48% of Americans pray every day. So that's almost half. 82% who pray typically pray about family or friends, as we've already looked at. 20% pray for people of other face or no face. Praise the Lord. An equal number of Americans pray behind the wheel either for a good parking space or not to get a speeding ticket. <laughs> and smaller numbers of people, around 5%, pray for someone's relationship to end, someone to get fired, or someone else to fail. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm praying, I'm not worried about a parking spot, I'm worried about surviving. That's usually my, my concern when I'm behind the wheel. That's, that's kind of my, my priority right there. The parking space, I'll walk, I don't mind that, just let me get there in one piece. Uh, but those are the interesting things as we look at that. And you may look at that and say, well, no, I don't pray about those things. I pray about different stuff. And I, you know, I look at that and I say, well, yeah, I pray for some of those things. Some of those things I don't. I don't really care much about sports teams. I guess that's not something I, I figure they're on their own. They make a lot of money. They can kind of survive on their own. They don't really need that. But some people do, and that's, that's understandable. But what we're going to look at today is we want to say, well, what does Paul pray about? What did Jesus pray about? What were the, some of the things? And as we looked at this passage, I think one of the key things, and we want to say this before we get too far into this, is what Paul said kind of in the second paragraph down there, starting in, actually in verse 10, or actually verse 9, let me back up. So he's, he's saying, this is what we're praying for you guys, you Colossians. He says, for this reason we also, from the day we heard about you, have not ceased praying for you and asking God what? To fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and he says in verse 10, so that you may live worthily of the Lord and please him in all respects. Now, that to me seems like a good goal, doesn't it? Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be able to live worthily of the Lord and please him in all respects? But sometimes we get confused as to what that may look like. And we hear that and we may think, well, that's okay for the pastor or the missionary, but I'm just a normal person. I'm not, what do I you know, worry about that? I just have a normal job. I just do normal things. But you know what? 
even the normal folks doing normal things can still make this their goal. Because you oftentimes, if you just have a normal job, you're a student, you're a, uh, in, employed in some regular secular job, there's a lot of people that you rub shoulders with. You know, that's one of the things I miss. Cindy and I have been with Christar since 1997. I don't get to rub shoulders with lost people as much as I used to in the workplace. You know, I, I, when I worked in criminal justice field, I was rubbing shoulders with people all the time that were lost. And it was a great opportunity to be able to just plant a little bit of seeds of truth every now and then, just to be able to share a little bit and to be able to answer some questions and do that. It's really kind of neat. But I think really what, what Paul is saying, no matter what your position in life is, you want to live a life that's worthy of the Lord. And that's what he wanted to pray for the Colossians. Let me give you an example of this life lived in a worthy manner. Everyone knew shuttle commander Rick Husband was a Christian. Before the shuttle Columbia took off, Rick stopped the crew and prayed for him. NASA workers commented that they had never before seen a commander pray with his crew. At T-minus two minutes before liftoff, a NASA controller commented that it was a perfect day for a launch, and Rick replied, the Lord has really given us a beautiful day. Before the flight, he left a recorded devotional video for each of his two children for each of the 17 days that he would be gone. That was 34 videos that he recorded so his children would not miss the daily devotions they had with their dad. In a video made for his home church in Houston, he explained the values of his life. If I ended up at the end of my life having been an astronaut, but having sacrificed my family along the way, or living my life in a way that didn't glorify God, then I would look back on it with a great regret. Having become an astronaut would not really have mattered all that much. And I finally came to realize that what really meant the most to me was to try and to live my life the way God wanted me to, and to try to be a good husband to Evelyn, and to be a good father to my children. When Columbia disintegrated over Texas a number of years ago, Rick Husband was aboard and perished in the disaster. When his pastor in Houston visited with Evelyn Husband, she showed the pastor documents Rick had to sign in case something tragic happened on the mission, and he did not return home. The documents contained personal messages to his family members, and at the bottom of the documents, Husband wrote a special note to his pastor that said, Tell them about Jesus. He means everything to me. And you know, the Apostle Paul would echo those sentiments as well because Jesus meant everything to the Apostle Paul. And as he was writing this letter to the Colossians, something we need to bear in mind is a little bit of background. He had never met them before. So these were people he didn't know personally. And he, as he writes this letter, he's writing some things that he's wanting to express to them. And Paul does it in his usual style. He has, you know, two parts. He has the first two chapters. It's belief followed by behavior. And he has, a, or you look at it as doctrine followed by duty. So these first two chapters, Paul's going to put the, the belief or, uh, out there. And then he's going to talk about how to implement that in the behavior. So he tells them, he says he's praying for them. And I think we want to look at some things. What does Paul pray for them? So let's look at this. We're going to start at verse 3. And the first thing we notice as Paul says he's praying for them, what do we see in the very beginning as he begins his prayer? He says, we always give thanks to God. So Paul begins his time of praying for them by giving thanks to God. He says it in verse 3. He says, we give thanks to God. I remember I was talking to Jairus about this um, before. I don't know how many of you have been around long enough to remember the video that Jairus did years ago. It was a Hewland Mall, I think, or somewhere. He went and interviewed people, just people randomly in the mall. What are you thankful for? It was around Thanksgiving. And he, he would ask them, and people would rattle off different things, and they would say, oh, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for that, typical things. And he would go around. And they were happy to do it. You could see people's face, they kind of lit up as they were talking about the things they were thankful for. And then he said, and who are you thankful to? And most people 
kind of stuff they didn't know who they were thankful to and most of them they were not christians i'm assuming so they were not thankful to god for all i think maybe one maybe one person so i'm thankful to god but they were thankful but they didn't know who to be thankful to now fortunately for us we don't have that problem we know we know who to be thankful to we know and we know the things that we can be thankful for and paul's going to give us some reminders of those as we go through uh, but he says it again in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. It's an important recurring theme in this book. It's, it's in chapter 2, it's in chapter 3, it's in chapter 4. And I think the reason why Paul is doing this, why he starts his prayer with thankfulness, is because I think that's what his life was based on. I think Paul had a thankful life, which is an overflow into his praying for them. I think that was how he lived his life. I think that was a characteristic of Paul's prayers because it was a characteristic of his life. And if you look at other letters, if you see other prayers of Paul, you see that he is being thankful, and he challenges us to be thankful. I remember when we were in Turkey years ago, we had a, a co-worker there, and he talked about the importance of thankfulness in prayers and I started to look at my own prayers and I thought I don't think I'm I don't think I'm really as thankful as I should be in my prayers and so I started to have to make it kind of a mental thing to make sure that I put thankfulness in there that I include that maybe I begin with it maybe I end with it maybe I have it in the middle but it's one of those things that it's it's uh, becomes a way of life thankfulness become a way of life but we have to oftentimes make those necessary steps to change it Dr. Alexander White of Edinburgh was famous for his pulpit prayers. He always found something to thank God for, even in bad times. One stormy morning, a member of his congregation thought to himself, the preacher will have nothing to thank God on a wretched morning like this. But White began his prayer, we thank thee, O God, that it's not always like this. And sometimes perspective is what we need, right? In order to, in order to help us with our thankfulness, we need perspective. So when we think about it, there's many things that we should be thankful for, and sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of those things. You know, complaining can be an easy habit for us to fall into, but it can be really a hard one to break. So we start our prayers with thanksgiving. It's much more likely that we will stay on the right track throughout them. And, you know, thankfulness is, you know, if you look around the bookstore, if you go to Amazon's website or you go to Barnes & Noble, you'll find that there's a lot of secular books that are written on thankfulness. And there's a lot of different, even people that don't know the Lord, people that are not Christians, they're just secular people. They have written on the benefits of thankfulness. I found this article from a website, and this person's obviously not a Christian, but look what they wrote about thankfulness. Starts off by writing, says, I remember one evening when my life was pretty different. I was overweight, deeply in debt, a smoker, and had such a hard time changing things. I felt horrible about myself and wondered why I was stuck. I felt hopeless and helpless and generally depressed about the state of things around me. Then I looked up at the sky and saw the stars set in a deep blue-black canvas, and I thought, what a miracle life is. And I resolved to mentally list the things I had in my life that were good. My list of good things was something like this. I had a wonderful wife, had five amazing children, now six. I, was, I had loving parents and siblings and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. I wasn't sick. I had a job. I had decent shelter and food. My family was healthy. I could see and appreciate the beauty of the world around me. I could taste delicious food. I had great books to read. The list went on, but you get the idea. Even when things seemed horrible for me, actually, I was okay. And more than that, I had some amazing blessings in my life. That night, I resolved to count my blessings more often. I resolved to be grateful for what I had and for the people in my life. I started the habit of gratitude. So there we see someone who's secular, who doesn't really acknowledge God as being the one who put those stars in place or who gave him a lot of those benefits, 
But nevertheless, he saw that there were some benefits to be had from being thankful. He had the perspective. You can see how it gave him that perspective as he looked at it. So it's something that even secular people sometimes pick up on. Now, let me give you another example of this. This is from Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry is a, a famous scholar, and he was once accosted by thieves who robbed him of his purse. Disclaimer, back in those days, it was okay for men to have purses, but we would maybe question Matthew Henry if he were around today with one. But back in that day, it was not uncommon, and he wrote these words after being robbed. He says, let me be thankful first, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. So you can see the perspective in both of these circumstances that we have to take. Sometimes we have to look for the things to be thankful for. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves for the things that we want to be thankful for. And that's something that can be a habit that we can get into. Now, I can, I can give you an example in my own life. Is, um, I have a short drive to work. I have a very short drive to work. I have... I drive two and a half miles to work, so it's very, very short. It's very easy. Some of you probably drive much, much more than me, and you probably think, I would love to be able to just drive two miles to work. That would be great. But even in my two miles to work, sometimes things can be frustrating behind the wheel. Sometimes it's traffic. Sometimes it's the conditions of the road. Sometimes it's other people, whatever it may be. And, you know, I can say, well, it's only like 10 minutes. I can, surely I can make that without any trouble, but oftentimes I don't. And then one day, the Lord reminded me of something as I was going along. It was, I think it was kind of this time of year. It was cold. It was wet. It was raining. I was driving along. Somebody did something. I didn't like it. And then I saw somebody sitting over there waiting for the bus. That's my perspective, right? You know, it, it could be a lot worse. You could be sitting over there in the rain waiting for a bus to pick you up that's going to take you, and then you still got to walk even further when you have a nice car that you drive from your home to your work, you know, all those different things. The perspective that that gave me, that it opened my eyes to see, you know what, if you stop and think, there's a lot of things that you can be thankful for. And so I think it's neat when we can do that and put it in our prayers. So Paul was thankful for them, he says, as we go back to our passage here, he says, he was thankful for them because of their faith and their love that sprang from their hope. You know, we often find this theme in Paul's writings, the faith, hope, and love. We see that quite a lot in his, in his writings. And it's really interesting when you think about hope, Hope is one of those things that you can't live very long without hope. You know, you can live for a while without water. You can live for a while without food. But you can't live very long without hope. If you are hopeless, oftentimes you just really despair and can't go forward. It can be something that really just inactivates you. Someone said this about these three. He says, faith is the soul looking up to God. Love looks outward to others. Hope looks forward to the future. Faith rests on the past work of Christ. Love works in the present. And hope anticipates the future. Now, as we look at this passage, we see this hope that Paul talks about. He says, your faith and love have arisen, in verse 5, from the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you heard about in the message of truth, the gospel. So this is a gospel hope that the Colossians have. This is a hope that they have, and so that hope motivates them to have faith in Christ, and that hope motivates them to reach out to those around them. That hope motivates them to love other Christians. And so Paul really wants to emphasize that as he looks at what he can praise God for and be thankful to them about. Now, notice also that Paul says he's always praying for them. And I think when Paul says things like that, he means it. And I, I think sometimes I am a little bit quick to say, well, I'm praying for somebody, and am I really doing it? I've, I've really been convicted of this. If I say that, I want to make sure that I am praying for them. 
If I say, oh, I'm praying for you, I want to make sure that I am praying for them. As Cindy and I walk alongside the people that are pursuing serving with Christ and I say I'm going to pray for them, I want to make sure that I do. If I've committed to pray people and I, I pray for people every day, I want to make sure that I am consistent in that. And I think Paul was consistent. He was always thankful and he was always praying. Of course, that doesn't mean Paul never did anything else but pray, but it rather conveys the idea that he lived in a state of prayer for them. And we shouldn't put prayer in a box and think that we're done with it when we pray for a few minutes in the morning or the evening or whatever we do. We don't necessarily see it as something we check off on our list and say, well, I prayed for today, so I'm done. Rather, we should still have times that we go about our day and we are reminded. And that's something that can be a little bit tough for me because sometimes I get distracted and I forget about praying and I am reminded at the end of the day, well, I should have prayed about that. But it's a habit, again, that we want to try to cultivate. It's something that we want to in, infuse into our lives. George Washington Carver, the guy who invented peanut butter, says, My prayers seem to be more of an attitude than anything else. I indulge in no lip service, but ask the great God silently, daily, and often many times a day to permit, the, to permit me to speak to him. I ask him to give me wisdom, understanding, and bodily strength to do his will. Hence, I am asking and receiving all the time. So in this opening chapter of the book of Colossians, Paul bursts into prayer for the Colossians, and he lets them know how he has been praying for them. And so what was Paul's prayer? Let's look at that again. We looked at it a little bit earlier. So what was it? So as he was praying for them, what was he focusing on? He says that they would be filled with the knowledge of God, or excuse me, knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That was his primary request for the Colossians, whom, again, he had not met. This is what he was always praying for them. Filled gives the idea of filling out to completeness. Knowledge suggests a deep understanding. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit was at work in these believers' lives using the Word of God, and this is how it was accomplished. The phrase there is all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The word of wisdom occurs six times in this letter. Wisdom from God, and this is a definition. This is one that I found as I was looking through this, and I thought it was very good. A definition of biblical wisdom, because you know, we often think about, well, Lord, I need wisdom. Lord, I need wisdom in this situation. Christar, I know our leadership is oftentimes saying, we need wisdom. And that's their, really their frequent prayer request. And I think a lot of us say, yeah, I need wisdom. But sometimes we think, well, what does that look like? So here's a great definition I found of biblical wisdom. Wisdom from God that's based on his word that results in a practical application of that truth in life. And I don't know where I got that from. I have to look back and see. But I have that noted down here, but I didn't say who it was from. But I think it's good. Wisdom from God that's based on his word that results in practical application of that truth in life. And that's what Paul is praying for them. That's what he wanted to be see carried out in their lives. And how was that to happen? That's why we have in verse 10, he says, So that you may live worthily of the Lord and please him in all respects. So that should be our aim as well, shouldn't it? We want to live worthily of the Lord and please Him in all respects. And if we're not, we need to ask ourselves, why not? What am I going to do about it if I realize that I am not doing it? Uh, and if I'm not living in a manner worthy of the Lord, the problem is not with the Lord, the problem is with me. Charles Stanley, in ways that only he could express it, says, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means that our conversations, conducts, and character are consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. We live in a manner that represents him with honor. This can only be accomplished if you allow Jesus to live in and through you. And that's a good reminder, isn't it? It's not something that we can just grit it out, grit our teeth, and say, I'm going to be thankful no matter what. It's something that we need the Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts. It doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play, but it doesn't mean that we can do it on our own through our own sheer effort. 
So the aim of believers in all their worthy conduct should be to please him in every way and to anticipate and do what he wishes us to do in every aspect of life. So if you had to write down your goal and you say, my aim or goal of my life is, and you fill in the blank, to think about it a little bit, not to say, well, I'm going to give the Sunday school answer. I'm going to give the answer everybody wants. But what is it? What is the thing? What is the aim or goal of your life? Is it to be healthy? Is it to be wealthy? Is it to be happy? Is it to be successful? What is it? And think about that. Paul said, he said, his aim was that the ambition of his life was to please God, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He said, that's what motivates me. I want to please God. And I think we all want to please God, but sometimes we can get distracted by other things. There's a lot of things in competition in our lives. There's a lot of things that are contending for our time, contending for our interests, contending for our focus. There's a lot of diversions, so to speak, that kind of get in the way of that. So we look at this passage and see Paul spells out for us four results or characteristics of a life that pleases God. And we see these listed uh, after where he talks about living a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects. So the first one he talks about is bearing fruit. I want to read a, uh, a passage on this from Dr. Tony Evans, because Dr. Evans is my go-to person when it comes to understanding things in a really practical sense. He talks about what does it mean to bear fruit. He says, Paul never stopped praying for the spiritual growth of the church in Colossae. He connects bearing good fruit with the knowledge of God, verse 10. This is an experiential knowledge, not just information. When Adam knew Eve, she conceived. That intimacy produced fruit. Paul asked the Lord that the Colossians would have the wisdom to make biblically-based decisions that come from knowing God's will. Then he prayed that the walk of their Christian life, how they lived, would result in every good work. The product of all this is fruitfulness. Having a useful Christian life that positively affects the lives of others. On the basis of our experience with him, God produces something in our lives that's beautiful, enjoyable, and useful. Most of us, Dr. Evans continues, want to bear good fruit. The problem is that there are many Christians hear about God and carry his book around. They're not really getting to know him, not really experiencing him. To bear fruit, which is contributing to the development of Christ-like character in the discipleship of others, we need to be grafted into the true vine, which is Christ, to be lifted up out of the dirt, to set aside our diversions and to remain in Christ. You don't just visit God for Sunday on two hours. You talk to him all the time, threading the discussion through all your activities. While you're walking or while you're driving, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, stay plugged in. And this is the part I really like. This is only Dr. Evans can say. You don't need a microwave experience with God. You need a crockpot experience. You need to simmer in his presence and impact the lives of others with the impact the Lord has had on you. I think that's really a neat analogy. Uh, a lot of times our culture is a microwave kind of culture. But really when it comes to spending time with God, we need to simmer in his presence. We need to have more of a, a crockpot experience. And that's something I think is a good reminder for us is we want to bear fruit in our lives. We want our lives to have an impact on those around us. And it's not that we work for God, but rather God works in us. And through us to produce the good deeds, as Paul told the Philippians in chapter 2, he said, So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I like how Warren Wiersbe says it, he says, Christian service is the result of Christian devotion. The work that we do is the outflow of the life that we live. It's by abiding in Christ that we can see fruit. Second thing he talks about there is increasing in knowledge, growing in a knowledge of God. So he says another result is that we will be increasing in knowledge of God. 
So these two are related. The knowledge is just not, as Dr. Evans said, an academic knowledge, but it's a practical knowing of God. It's knowing who he is and what he expects of us and also knowing what he can do. It's one thing to read a verse and know that it's true. It's another thing to know that it's true and you've personally seen it in your own life. It's not a theoretical knowledge, it's a practical knowledge. My God shall supply all your needs, Paul wrote to the Philippians, and that is true, but have we seen him supply our needs? And as a person who's been with Christar, as I said, since 1997, we have seen God supply needs. We have seen him answer prayer. We have seen him provide. We have seen him open doors that only he can open. You can't, I can't account for it any other way. The things that God has done, the things that he has sustained, the people that he has provided, the, all the different things cannot really be rationally explained any other way than God is at work. And he responds to the prayers of his people. God's wisdom, Wiersbe says, reveals God's will. As we obey God's will in our walk, we can work for him and bear fruit. We will not just occasionally serve God. We will be fruitful in every good work. But there's a blessed byproduct of this experience, increasing in the knowledge of God. As we walk with God and work for God, we get to know him better and better. And that brings us to the third point where Paul says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the display of all patience and steadfastness. So this spiritual growth is a third factor that results in a life that's worthy of the Lord. We'll be strengthened with all power. It's power that's according to God's glorious might. The word might there means power that overcomes resistance. The result of God's power at work in our lives is we'll have steadfastness, great endurance and patience. And really that's something we need on a regular basis, isn't it? That's something that we need not just on the mission field or as a pastor, but all of us need that kind of strength. We need to be able to, to draw on God's power for the things that we have to, to deal with. You know, if you think about God's miraculous deliverances throughout Scripture, there's a lot of different things that God has done for his people. And we want to be able to look at that and say, Lord, do it again in my life. I need you in my life. I need you to strengthen me. I need you to help me. I need you to guide me so that I can live in a way that's pleasing to you. So we think about those mighty works. You know, Paul often talked about God's strength. Uh, he said he experienced it in his own life in Philippians 4. He wanted others to know about it in Ephesians 1. He identified it with the work of the Spirit in the inner man, and he describes its greatness in Ephesians 3, chapter 20. So Paul really believed a lot in the, in the power of the gospel. He believed a lot in the power of God in the lives of people, and it was something that he was dependent on as well. We sometimes think of Paul and think, well, you know, he was... The Apostle Paul, he, he didn't struggle with the things that I struggle with. And we tend to put people up on a pedestal. We think, well, if a person's up here speaking, you know, they don't struggle with anything. They got it all together. They don't have any of the struggles that I have. That's not the case. We all are strugglers. We all are needing God to provide us with the wisdom and the power that we need to be able to live for him. And the final thing that Paul wants to talk about is giving thanks. He says in verse 12, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. So as we look at this, the final factor we see is giving thanks. And this points us back to the beginning where we talked about Paul's prayer for them. Our lives really should be characterized by thankfulness. But sadly, if we're honest, sometimes they're more characterized by complaining or other things instead. At least mine sometimes isn't. I find myself complaining more than I'm praising, and that's something I have to work on. Spurgeon said, as long as a man is alive and out of hell, he has no reason to complain. And I think that's true. It gives, goes back to perspective again. Here's another example from Warren Wiersbe. He says, uh, he illustrated the problem of lack of thankfulness in his commentary on this book. He talked about a ministerial student in Evanston, Illinois, who was part of a life-saving squad. In 1860, a ship went aground on the shore of Lake Michigan near Evanston, and Edward Spencer, 
waded again and again into the frigid waters to rescue 17 passengers. In the process, his health was permanently damaged. Some years later at his funeral, it was noted that not one of the people he rescued ever thanked him. So we look at that and we think, we don't want to be in that group, right? We don't want to be a person who, when we should be thanking someone for doing something, we don't want to be among those who don't thank them. It goes again back to the perspective, which is oftentimes very important. And Paul gives us a little bit of perspective here in verse 12 when he says, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has, and he lists some things, he has qualified us, he has rescued us, he has transferred us. In light of all that, as Spurgeon said, what reason do we have to complain? Paul sums it up, says we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In light of that, what do we have to complain about? When we get that perspective, our complaining can be transformed into praise and giving of thanks. I like Martin Luther who said, Smite, Lord, if my sins be forgiven, smite as hard as you will. For Luther, the fact that his sins were forgiven didn't mean it didn't matter what kind of hardship he had to face. It didn't matter what kind of difficulties the Lord might send his way as long as his sins were forgiven. And if you've read any of the, the biography, biographies of Martin Luther, you know that he really, before he became a believer, he was in a Catholic tradition and he really felt like he had to earn his way to heaven. He had to work and work and work and he was a very diligent monk. And he worked and he was continually striving after that. So when he talks about, if my sins are forgiven, I don't worry about what kind of hardship may come because my sins are forgiven. If that's taken care of, the hardships don't really matter as much because that issue is taken care of. And that should be our perspective as well as we look at that. So as we look at this passage, we say, what is the application for us today? So I think what we want, to go, we want to look at, I think first of all, when we look at prayer, we can say prayer can really be about anything. There's nothing wrong with praying about a parking spot or praying about traffic or praying about you know, issues in our families and issues and all those things are on the table for prayer. I think we can pray about anything. I think that's what God wants us to do. I think he wants us to bring everything before him. Uh, and I think what we do, though, is we want to ask ourselves, though, but what other things am I praying that would impact my spiritual life as well as the spiritual life of those people that are around me? So we want to pray for ourselves and those under our influence, the things that Paul prayed for the Colossians, that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that we would walk in the manner worthy of the Lord. As we meditate and ponder deeply on the things that Paul listed, and we can go back over them and, and let our minds dwell on them richly, I think what we want to say is our prayers want to be characterized by being thankful we want to make sure that we're consistent in our prayers that we regularly pray that we regularly pray for things that are for others spiritual growth as well as our own And as we close i want to close with this benediction from ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 now to him is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in, in us let him be to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can pray, that we can lift up things before you, that you are an ever-present help in time of trouble, that there's no difficulty too small, no issue too complex that we cannot bring it before you. And we do want to model Paul's prayer, Jesus' prayer, the things that we see in the New Testament of how to pray in a way that you would have us do. So we ask for your help in whatever areas we struggle, in Jesus' name, amen.